I came up for you. Welcome, Rank and Review fans, to another fun-filled episode of the show. Mireille Smith has returned, and we are going to talk about six horror films on the theme of lovely ladies. And I guess we'll have to put lovely in quotation marks, but it's an interesting and uh, pretty perverse collection of films, so uh, look forward to that. As usual, with every episode of Rank and Review, you can expect spoilers for the films being discussed, and you can expect frequent course language. Also, the subject matter does touch on some pretty triggering issues, things such as rape and subjugation and torture and abuse. Uh, so if that's not to your taste, understood, um, but I'm putting all of that up front. If you like Rank and Review, not only do you have good tastes in podcasts, but my assumption is that you will also like the Terror Table podcast, so I encourage you to check them out. Also, if you like Rank and Review or you have any thoughts, I really do enjoy hearing from my listeners. Uh, please send feedback to your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, at Rank and Review. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca, and please tell a friend about Rank and Review. All right, I think I've poured enough poison in your ear. Let's get on with lovely ladies. Um, Mireille Smith, uh, after much technical difficulties, it looks like we finally got things up and running, and we can talk about these lovely ladies that we've been uh, stewing on. It's been almost a year since you've been on the show. It has, almost exactly, in fact. Time flies when you're having fun. You're going to be the last podcast of January 2019. I'm honored. And we're going to talk about lovely ladies. I'm glad that you're honored. Um... So one of the things that horror movies get a lot of flack for is that they don't take women seriously, or worse, that they objectify and exhibit nothing but cruelty towards women. Yes. It's, it's frustrating to me because although I see that argument, there's a, there's a case to be made in certain cases, there's also the other side of the argument which says, more often than not, I mean, they're referred to as, quote, the survival girl, and maybe girl is a little bit dismissive, but typically the most powerful character in a horror movie is a woman. Typically, the most violence that we see, at least administered on screen, is to a man. And the violence is almost exclusively, I mean, there's exceptions in this list we're talking about, administered by men. I think a case can be made, and definitely these movies will help me make that case, that horror movies are actually much harder on men <laughs> than they are on women. There's, exploit there's exploitation, I get that. The girls have their boobs out more often than not, and there's like the hysterical character or the cowardly character, almost always female. I understand this. I don't want to be dismissive about it. But I do get tired of that argument. 
That's where I wanted to start. Also, hello, Mick. Hi. <laughs> it's funny though, that you say that because that was actually um, uh, one of the points that I was going to make with regard to uh, the portrayal of men. <laughs> that surprised me. I wasn't expecting to think that. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> Uh, how successful they are, we can talk about, but I think a case can be made that we're talking about six feminist horror movies? <laughs> Question mark? Mm, question mark. <laughs> I didn't... That thought didn't come to mind after I watched the movies personally, but... Well, okay, they're trying. There's an intent, attempt, intent there. However successful they are, we can discuss on a case-for-case -case basis. But I like to think that the people behind the women were not interested in just making a torture porn movie, right? They wanted oh, okay. to say something about, you know, gender issues or, or societal politics, blah, blah, blah. Uh, sure, yeah. You chose this list. I did. <laughs> so it's on you. <laughs> um, why <laughs> this list? I'm curious. I had the only two movies on this list I'd seen were Carrie and Rosemary's Baby and I like both of those movies and I thought oh you know um, six female centric horror movies and plus I wanted to watch a few movies that were maybe actually scary because I hadn't done any of those before so that was my reason <laughs> you wanted to get something actually scary on the books I can, I can respect that. Um, you were calling this one lovely ladies. Uh, I guess lovely in quotation marks. Again, on a case-by-case -case basis. But Eye of the beholder. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's almost always a supernatural element. And there's almost always a... Uh, a story about someone overcoming... Either, either getting some kind of a vengeance or overcoming an obstacle or a weakness. Um, whether that being good for them or bad for them and the people around them, again, on a case-for-case -case basis, we're going to have to discuss. But yeah. I think it would be fair to say that there is a percentage of ugly sexuality in all of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've warned guests in the past how it's uh, sometimes not a really uh, good idea to watch all of the movies like really tight together, because it will... It can actually spoil the meal a little bit. It might affect the rank, you know. If you, by the time you get to movie five, you're just like, Jesus wept. What am I doing here? Yes. So yeah, these movies are exploitive and icky. Yeah, there's uh, some uncomfortable sexuality and some uh, physical exploitation that's going to happen. But I think that, again, for the most part, they're not just about exploitation. So while we, we can't miss the exploitation, we're going to have to talk about the exploitation. It will be impossible to miss. Uh, I just, uh, for anybody out there who, you know, got their arms folded about the whole list, <laughs> uh, I think it's not just, you know, um, I spit on your grave. It's not just like uh, torture porn revenge. I think that something is trying to be said, however successfully each time. Um, is there anything you wanted to say before I list off the six movies and we finally start recording this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we should just begin. Okay. Well, for the record, and I put them in this specific order, if, if it's against what you're hoping for, let me know. But 
the order I have them in here is we'll talk about Brian De Palma's Carrie. Then we'll talk about Prom Night 2. Hello, Betty Lou. Then we'll talk about Dead Girl. Then we're going to talk about Teeth because someone finally made a movie about Vagina Dentata. Thank you. It's <laughs> about time. <laughs> um, the Woman from Lucky McGee. And we'll finish it off with Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Thank you so okay. much for your patience. Thank you so much for being here. No Let's problem. talk and about kinky stuff. <laughs> If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. Other people can do it. I read about it. Witch. It's Satan's power. No! If you don't have a date for the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? I've been invited to the prom. Why Tommy ask her to the prom? What for? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you... It's been a while since we've talked about Stephen King, <laughs> so let's talk about Stephen King. Okay. Um, Carrie is, of course, his first published novel, and uh, since there's a sub-theme about, uh, you know, women coming to the rescue, <laughs> uh, he wrote the first third of the book basically setting up Carrie's backstory and the story of her humiliation in the locker room, all of the girls throwing tampons at her and telling her to plug it up really classy stuff and he had this sort of arguably weak writer moment where he decided you know like this is too dark and this is outside my wheelhouse what do i know about the pains and qualms of a, a teenage girl right so he threw it in the garbage his wife fished it out of the garbage and she read it and she agreed that it's really dark and really ugly but that he should probably see it through and he did and it got published, and it got noticed, and Brian De Palma made this movie. That. Yeah, so his first big break was initially uh, an abandoned project. So a don't abandon projects, and b you know sometimes it pays to listen to the wife. You know, yeah. I can relate to that sort <laughs> of idea of thinking. You know, uh, write what you know, and what what does you know uh, a thirty year old man know about a, a tormented sixteen year old girl? Probably not a lot, <laughs> right? But I think what makes Carrie work is that uh, we can all identify with the underdog, you know, overcoming some terrible obstacles. And we spend most of the time, the first half of the movie, just seeing all of these obstacles that are in front of Carrie. <laughs> she's a plain, at least in the, in the book, she's a very plain uh, girl who has a bit of an attitude and chip on her shoulder as forcefully bred into her by her religious zealot mother. She doesn't get along at home and she doesn't get along at school and she's just generally kind of miserable. 
we pity her and we understand where she's coming from, but everybody else is just sort of annoyed by her or, you know, cruel to her. And we want Carrie to have a win. <laughs> and I guess the story is Carrie getting a win at the cost of everything, <laughs> you know, herself, anything that was good yeah. in her, her life, her environment. But again, the environment that we're shown is just so brutal that it, as dark as the movie gets, it still somehow feels like Carrie wins in the end. Mm-hmm. I love De Palma as a technical filmmaker. I think, you know, I've talked about this movie in the past, that from a, from a technical filmmaking standpoint, it right out of the gate just displays that De Palma is a absolutely worthy director to watch. This combination of that Stephen King story, Sissy Spacek, who the only problem I have with her entire performance in the movie is that she's too pretty in a lot of ways to play Carrie to me. I didn't really see the transformation. I always thought Carrie was kind of pretty, you know, in the movie. She has an inherent sweetness because she's performed by Sissy Spacek. Um, yeah. But that's, 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 that's as close to a criticism as I can give to the performance. And I don't have much of criticism to the execution. So... What can we bring new to this conversation about Carrie, Mick? What's your spin on this 1976, I would call, classic horror movie? (laughs) Jeez, I don't know if I have anything new to say. Um, But, you know, the the mean girl dynamic is just... (laughs) I mean, it's it's just a, a really, really good portrayal. I mean, you can see that happening in in every school and every group of friends, you know, there's, it's horrifying actually. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's good. We see a lot of themes that King's going to be mining throughout his career are, you know, almost fully formed in this one of his first novels. The idea of a, a, a villainous character who uses their religious faith as uh, an excuse to do they're bad things, you know? Everything bad and everything good that dictates their lives can somehow be justified or vindicated in the Bible. Um, Carrie's mother is horrifying in her depiction, and I don't know how, quote, real world it is, but it is certainly a memorable, <laughs> memorable character. Um, she's killing her child with love. Yeah, terrible, horrifying love. It's, yeah, and I mean, she is way over the top, but it works for her fanaticism. Yeah, Piper Laurie got, you know, nominated for an Oscar for this role, and I totally understand that Oscars love psycho roles, right? And I agree with you that there's a percentage of theatricality to that performance that is, like, several levels higher than anyone else is playing in the movie. But look at that character. I mean, how else do you, you know, approach that? Yeah, she's a raving lunatic and she'll say like insane things with a big cartoon smile on her face. I watched the documentary on the making of and uh, Piper Laurie talked about her take on her death scene when she's basically being crucified and stabbed by all these kitchen implements. She talked to De Palma about it and said, what if she really loves it? What if she loves dying? What if this suffrage and transition is just like all that she'd hoped it could ever be? And yeah. If you watch it with that in mind, it, it becomes almost an orgasmic scene as she's bleeding out in front of her daughter, which is just another layer of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> 
So I want to correct something from a previous review. Uh, I talked to you about this. Betty Buckley plays a character named Miss Collins in this, and she's the one character in the movie who actually is decent to carry. And in our previous review, when I talked about this movie with Mr. Beckman, I kept on referring to her as Miss Snell, and that is incorrect. She's Miss Collins, and it drives me crazy that I got it wrong. <laughs> it's also interesting because uh, I, I think it's an interesting inclusion in the movie that this one character who is genuinely sympathetic, genuinely sweet, genuinely good-hearted to Carrie is personally killed by Carrie. Like, Carrie makes the decision to kill her. Everybody in that gym, by their presence there, is guilty in her mind. So she kills even the innocent. And we see her make that choice. And it, it, it muddies the water for us a little bit. I mean, yes, a lot of innocent high school kids are dying. We shouldn't be cheering for her at this point. But why Miss Collins? That moment always really stings. And it adds to the horror of the moment, you know? Yeah, well, the greater the trust, the greater the betrayal. Yeah. You know, I mean, she thought she had made a friend. She thought she was, um, you know loved by another a grown woman in her life and then when she felt betrayed you're off the book yeah that's it that's it uh and it's another classic case of no good deed goes unpunished one of the girls sue snell feels genuinely terrible about her treatment of carrie so she deserves to not go to prom and she decides to take her licks and over and above that, she decides to set Carrie up with this boy who clearly is infatuated with her as sort of a favor and a gesture to Carrie. She was so horrible to her, maybe she can at least give Carrie this one good night, this one memorable occasion where, you know, her life wasn't a big shit stain. <laughs> and again, for their pains and for their good choices, um, she's traumatized for the rest of her life, for sure. <laughs> and uh, he's pretty damn dead. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, it, it's an interesting, like, we can't help but cheer for Carrie. I mean, I, speaking, maybe I should just speak for myself, but speaking as, a you know, someone who was bullied really badly, both mentally and physically, <laughs> for a good portion of his childhood, there is undeniably some kind of rush that you get of seeing the tables turned uh, of course in the story here it's ignited by her puberty her burgeoning womanhood kind of triggers her, her psychic powers to another level we know from the novel they don't get into it in the in the in the movie that throughout her childhood weird things have happened but clearly with you know her becoming an adult Things have gone up another level. Uh, how do you feel yeah. about the power of femininity, you know, sort of being a, a trigger point for supernatural powers? Is that cool or condescending? Kick ass. <laughs> I wish I had some. <laughs> We're going to meet a lot of women, actually, in this list with superpowers. <laughs> so it'll be interesting as we go through it. <laughs> but I... I think that I'm more on the side of cheering for Carrie at the end, even though she does kill a gymnasium full of people yeah. because she dies at the end. Yeah. She doesn't walk away whistling. She doesn't move to another town and start over. You know, she's all in and that's it. Yeah. So um, 
that makes it easier. Well, and I guess we, having read the book, we, we have a, a little bit more of a foundation. This is a girl who's like trapped in a closet for hours a day, staring at a creepy as shit crucifix of Jesus, begging to be forgiven for sins that she hasn't committed. <laughs> you know, uh, she's just been abused and put upon for so long, you can't help but see it turn around and, and, and like cheer for her a little bit. But it just, even when she wins, she loses, right? She, her mother tells her when she goes to that prom, it's all going to be an elaborate joke and everyone's going to laugh at her. And that proves to be true. So she goes home weeping and bloodied and humiliated to seek comfort from her mother. And her mother promptly stabs her in the back, literally stabs her in the back. So yeah, she's going to take out mom. She's going to take out herself. She's going to take out the neighborhood. In the book, she basically takes out the town. Yeah. Be nice to that odd kid out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That image of her walking home all bloody and her dress and everything, that's, that stays with me. That <laughs> Just that image of her. It's just so chilling. Yeah. A lot of the evil in the movie, and again, discounting Carrie. I think if she's evil, she was made evil. But uh, the main bully... Chris in this movie, she is fucking awful. And as discussed, Carrie's mom is fucking awful. At least in this movie, the the evil is distributed <laughs> pretty uh, pretty substantially across the the female characters. They didn't feel the need to make the men the big bad in this case. Part of the problem right. there too is John Travolta. I think his character was as written is much more hostile, is much more macho, but. Travolta just was uncomfortable like apparently he didn't even want to slap the actress even pretend to slap her he was so upset at the idea that he could accidentally hurt someone that he wasn't very convincing at playing a bully uh, he actually sort of comes off as a guy being led along the, this this blonde woman is able to talk him into killing a pig and draining its blood into a bucket just because he thinks that she's hot <laughs> you know yeah, yeah she's just so awful <laughs> It kind of reminds me, there's a, this is a little bit off tangent, but there's an anthology movie called Trick or Treat, where these, these trick-or-treaters are really, really tormenting a, another girl, sort of Carrie figure, and the worst of them, the little girl, is dressed like an angel. <laughs> there's this, this something about this dichotomy of like a really, really pretty face, just with evil behind it. <laughs> Carrie Mulligan plays a character like that in Inside Lewin Davis. She's very beautiful and she sings very sweetly, but whenever she's off stage, everything that comes out of her mouth is just awful. <laughs> I, I really find those characters interesting because they look like the perfect princess bride, kind of ideal, but yeah. underneath that is just this terrible, terrible death of the... So yeah, all these years later, Carrie still flips my, my bully switch. I still enjoy seeing all of these people punished, and I know that maybe I shouldn't, but it's an immortal horror movie. I mean, again, it's a classic movie, and classic movies are hard to review, because if you haven't seen Carrie, I don't know what I can tell you that will convince you that you should, but you yeah. definitely should. Um, and even though it's one of King's first novels, it's it's very interesting um and as much as there's stuff in the novel that I, I think like i said he revisits again there's also stuff that's kind of unique like again the perspective 
almost exclusively being told from a teenage girl and the use of uh, like journal entries and uh, news articles and almost a it's a weird thing to say but it's almost like a dossier or a quote found footage approach to the story in a novel Hmm. which I also kind of found interesting Hmm. so I don't remember the novel well enough yeah so many years ago it's worth revisiting like I said it's a very 70s book but it's also one of his quick reads it's by King's standards practically a short story yeah <laughs> um, so yeah I guess I've gushed about Carrie again is there anything else that you want to say I feel like I kind of rolled over you a little there uh, no not at all um, I'm not a De Palma expert or anything like that if I had two eensy tiny little complaints about the movie it would be um, the scene with the um, when the teacher brings Carrie into the principal's office and he keeps calling her Cassie yes and and Carrie's getting upset he does it three times in a row and is corrected three times in a row and that is just really you're doing it on purpose buddy like you are deliberately antagonizing this girl at that point there's no way anybody is that absent-minded that they would you know do that three times in a row so that kind of bothered me a little bit I don't know I, uh, the level of dispassion that I think I've witnessed within like the education system <laughs> <laughs> I don't know perhaps a case could be made <laughs> okay uh, and the second one was um, the scene in the prom uh, where Carrie and the guy um, are dancing and it's the twirly scene Right. I just thought it was a little bit too twirly <laughs> too many times around at the risk of airing an unpopular opinion, I know that we need it because we have to see Carrie in bliss. We have to see her absolutely happy before everything turns to shit. But that scene does almost feel like it's in slow motion. They really agonize over every inch of it, uh, both the good and the bad. So, uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from there. It is kind of a cool shot, but uh, maybe incongruous with <laughs> the story being told. Or just too long. Or just too long. Yeah. Damn that, it. That's all. That's it. <laughs> Watch Carrie, damn it. She's been dead for 30 years. Now she's going to use Vicky's body to get her crown back. Morning, prom queen. Only nominated, not the winner. Not yet. Mary Lamalmi has come back. <laughs> Vicky. Wrong. You came with me. She will enter your body and possess you. See you later, alligator. On revenge. Another prom queen hopeful bites the big one. Cracking up? I don't know what's happening to me. She's dead. Dad, you know something about this, don't you? They're playing our song. Hello, Mary Lou. Prom night two. So Carrie was a monster hit. Everybody loves Carrie. If, if, you know. If this podcast is catching your ears and you haven't heard Carrie or haven't seen Carrie, I just I just don't know what I can say to you. Part of the uh, 
ripple effect of it being so popular is plenty of films tried to rip it off. Uh, Prom Night being a fairly successful one starring uh, Scream Queen Jamie Lee Curtis, who's still making horror slasher movies 40 years later, by the way. Um, Yeah, it's... This movie was produced independently in Canada basically to be a ripoff of Carrie. They wanted to make a low-budget, significantly sleazier version of Carrie, okay? And, you know, these things happen. Uh, In order to get it distributed, I guess the people who bought the movie decided, well, we'll call it Prom Night 2. It's centered around a prom. We've already got a successful Prom Night movie, but... In, a cal- in no calculated way was this movie made to really be a sequel to Prom Night. It's a, it's a sequel in name only. None of the characters cross over and the story is completely independent of that. So you don't have to feel like you needed to do di- due diligence and do your homework and watch Prom Night to enjoy Prom Night 2. That's good because I did not watch Prom Night. <laughs> so in 1988, um, I'd be, let's do some basic math, 12... Uh, I had a video store in Beaumont, the small town I grew up in, and the the dude there would let me rent R-rated movies, but he was weirdly militant about certain things. Like, he wouldn't let me rent Sorority House Massacre, because that would be wrong, right? But he would let me rent Friday the 13th, weirdly, or, like, Rambo, weirdly, right? Like, he was weird about it. (laughs) Prom Night would have been one of the movies, like Sleepy, uh, or Sleepaway Camp, that I assumed he wouldn't let me rent. But he would let me rent that one. And there was always plenty of copies of it. And when I was visiting my friends in Edmonton, Scott and Karen, at the video store, there was always lots of copies of Prom Night 2. And I just like, didn't, was this a really popular movie? Well, this is my childhood in Alberta, in Beaumont and Edmonton. And it, I had no idea at the time, but this movie was shot in Edmonton, where, where you're sitting right now as we have this conversation in that city. This movie was made. Now... That certainly doesn't make the movie better, <laughs> but it does kind of give me like an aw shucks appeal to me. Like, this is a no-budget movie made by a bunch of Canadians trying like hell to rip off Carrie, right? They don't have the technical prowess, they don't have the budget, they don't have like anything that, you know, could make them competitive with Carrie. But God damn it, they tried to make the best little supernatural slasher sleaze fest they could. So, I'm going to play a bit of defense for Prom Night 2. While sort of dropping the caveat, is it a good movie? I, I don't know that you could honestly say it's a good movie. It's good at being what it is. <laughs> uh, and what it is, is, a, like I said, a cheap, sleazy, supernatural slasher movie. And if you're in the mood for that, or if that is to your tastes, I think this is kind of an interesting one. It definitely has its icky corners, but again, considering where we're going to be going after this review to the other ones we're going to be talking about, it comes off strangely innocent <laughs> in spite of all of the dirty corners. Like, it just it just wanted to be what it was, and it sort of excels at being what it is. It hasn't aged particularly well. You definitely have to look at it through the lens of the time it was made and the, the kind of movie it is, but... I'm going to guiltily defend the movie, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's it's amazing. I'm saying it is what it is. And for this genre of movie, 
it's kind of got some interesting corners. But I am very interested to hear what you have to say about Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Well, I did not expect to like this movie going in. Um, I did not know that it was a ripoff of Carrie. And then, you know, as I'm watching it, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this seems terribly familiar. <laughs> we have our locker room scene. We have the prom. We have rigging the election at the prom. We have revenge. We have overly religious mothers. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are a lot of similarities. Um but, yeah, I think I'm kind of on the same side as you are for this one. It's kind of silly and campy, and, I mean, the special effects, I don't know if I'd say they're good, but they're inventive. For the know? time, I would say that some of them are quite good. When the okay. when, when Mary Lou erupts out of the corpse in the, in the sort of climactic oh, yeah. prom sequence, as a feat of spe- like practical special effects in 1987... Solid. Especially in a low-budget movie, I would say. I mean, obviously today it would be very CGI'd, right? But yeah. they couldn't do that. And, and again, for the type of film it is, that, that scene absolutely works for me. You know? um, the one I was thinking of in particular when I said that was the locker squishing the <laughs> lady and you get the, the pink uh, goo coming out. We're going to talk about the locker room scene. <laughs> This is going to get a little weird. I apologize in advance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about plot because it's very possible that people will not have seen <laughs> Prom Night 2. It does not quite have the audience that Carrie does somehow. Uh, it, it starts in... It's set in the 50s and the 80s. In the, in the 50s, there's a disastrous uh, prom night in which uh, Mary Lou is burned alive in front of the entire school. Now, some might say there was some karmic <laughs> thing happening because they established Mary Lou as just being terrible, but she burns alive, and that's a bad way to go. Uh, fast forward 30 years later, the former love interest of Mary Lou is now running the school, and uh, one of the students becomes possessed. And we see her sort of slowly become corrupted and change from this sort of sweet, blithe, innocent girl to this kind of nasty, sexually aggressive towards priests and kind of her own dad at one point. And like, <laughs> that was uncomfortable. There's so many uncomfortable scenes. It's like theater of the uncomfortable. Um, and every character, and this is again something I brought up about Canadian movies, low budget movies just have a beat or two that go a little darker and a little nastier than maybe they should the The first woman who kill, gets killed, we have this detail that she found out she was pregnant and so the murder is made to look like a suicide and the, the, the tragedy and horror of it is kind of compounded by that the kid who is supposed to rig the election and the tech guy, I think is supposed to be laughable and comp relief Except he's only going to rig the election if the shitty girl gives him a blowjob. And that kind of kills any kind of, like, this guy has charm. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's always a percentage or two weirder or darker than you think it's going to be. And that adds up to being a good thing. But again, individual choices that I don't think I would have made on the day. <laughs> deeply, deeply strange. So, going back to the video store conversation and, and what I was allowed to run around, I think he had hang-ups about the sexploitation, okay? He didn't, 
he could he was okay with me seeing violence but sex you right and how true is that especially of the 80s any level of violence was acceptable but a nipple would stop traffic <laughs> right but he let me rent this movie and that locker scene might be the first time i saw a fully nude woman outside of the shining which doesn't count because The Shining is just traumatizing. It's just traumatizing, <laughs> right? So this blonde actress, Canadian actress with crimped hair, walking stark naked for quite a long time in this locker room is kind of burned into my brain because I saw it at a very delicate age. And I guess that might feed in me playing defense to the movie. And it's not something that's necessarily good or necessarily bad about the movie, but it's just a point. It's a card I had to flip. It's just true. <laughs> okay, I need to just mention something about, from a girl's point of view, from the <laughs> that shower scene. Okay, so I would welcome that. A, one of the girls is already in the shower, mm-hmm. and then the the girl possessed by Mary Lou goes in and kind of chats with her a little bit and she gets way too close. Yeah. Like, and it takes way too long for the friend to become uncomfortable and be like, what's going on here? <laughs> like two normal friends would, that's, that's not how it happens in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've, you've shattered a lot of illusions for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But again, it's another one of these uncomfortable, weird things. Yeah, because they're playing up this sort of sexual tension between these women. And, and like uh, in a lot of 80s horror movies, that, that was a, a key that was played as like some part of the madness, some part of the ickiness. Ooh, there's a, there's a gayness here, right? Um, and again, there's, there's a, a revulsion. Once the, the, the worm turns, however late, she's kind of grossed out by it. But yeah, she ends up paying with it for her life. Um, Oh, and there was some other weird stuff, too, in that sometimes she was completely naked, and then a split second later she had a towel on, (laughs) that kind of stuff. It's very frustrating. (laughs) 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 Well, again, and I I feel like I'm bending over backwards to defend the nudity here. A, I mean, it's exploitation cinema. Part of the thing is forbidden fruit. We're not allowed to see violence. We're not allowed to see sexuality. So there it was. And B, I guess... One could argue it is a little bit of a subversion to see a naked woman pursuing somebody to kill them. Typically, the killer is pursuing a naked, scantily clad woman. Do I think that the people who made this movie thought that deeply about it? No, I do not. (laughs) I'm working really hard here. But you know what? I didn't... I wasn't looking at it that way, but that makes sense. I can... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we got all of that out. Um, I, I guess I will finish where I started. I mean, if, if our description of this movie <laughs> sounds like something that you'd be curious about, by all means, check it out. It, I think it is memorably odd and, you know, uncomfortable, but not so uncomfortable as to sort of diffuse the enjoyment of the, the proceedings. Yeah, it, I agree. It is icky. It is kind of just like a supernatural slasher. You're not going to, you know, sit with it for a long time. It's not going to, like, change your world. But it's surprisingly successful, I think. (laughs) And I'm not sure, like... I had to kind of 
read a little bit about it later to fully understand how the supernatural suitcase and everything was working at the end and stuff. Like, I didn't 100% get it story-wise when I watched it, but, I mean, that didn't matter, really. (laughs) But... And again, the ending is kind of a mess, really. Like, we have another big prom finale, and a bunch of people get killed, and the, the, the mean girl gets killed, and the guy rigging the election gets electrocuted, and Michael Ironside shows up to try and correct a wrong from his past, but instead of defeating the evil, becomes possessed by it himself. And so the credits roll on a very, un, you know, cliffhanger, unsorted, sort of uncertain ending. And again, I don't think anyone's going to lose sleep over it. It's it's a lean ninety three minute carnage titty full movie. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was one of the hilarious moments. I thought was Michael Ironside when he uh, right after he set Mary Lou on fire in the beginning. One of his reaction shots was him on the stairs just pounding his fist on the stair like, oh no. <laughs> like, that's That'll not help. How people react when they set other people on fire. <laughs> If I was a person who worked on Hello, Mary Lou, I would not be ashamed of it, you know? A lot of people will completely dismiss and roll their eyes at this movie, and, uh... I mean, and a lot of people would not like this movie at all. I mean, it's definitely for a specific audience. But if you're that specific audience, go ahead, Bert. Is there something you gotta see? What'd you do to her, JT? What the fuck did you do to her? Look at her. This isn't real. Staying here with us. Hey, baby, you miss me? Hey, Ricky. Everything all right? Just asking for trouble, JT. We're all gonna get arrested or worse. Down here, we're in control. We call the shots. Joanne Skinner? She'll never choose you, man. Guess I can't see him when he's staring over Joanne! Whatever you hear after tonight, I want you to know that I tried to stop Dead Girl. Hopefully you watched the right Dead Girl in that the movie that you watched was about some teenagers who find a zombie woman tied to a gurney in the basement of an asylum and decide to keep her as their personal fuck toy. That is what I watched. Okay, because there is another movie called Dead Girl, which is a series of sort of short vignettes all focused around the discovery of a, of a, a woman's body. That so, one is probably Dead Space Girl. This one is Dead Girl. Dead Girl. No space. Yeah, right. I get you. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an ugly, ugly, ugly movie. Like, there's no getting around it. And I, again, when I talked about it at the beginning of the uh, episode, how I think that a lot of these movies have some dark subject matter, but I think their heart, their intention was good as they set out. This is the, not the last movie, I think this is the first of three movies where pretty much all of the male characters in the movie, by necessity of the plot, are despicable. Yeah. I have, uh, I got a, a, a letter from a, a listener in Germany, which just thrilled me that somebody was ah. listening to Rankin Review from Germany. And uh, he assessed my reviews and, you know, said what he agreed with and what he didn't and said that uh, he doesn't have a problem with movies with unlikable protagonists, but he can tell that I do. And I just want to say for the record, largely he's right about that. If I'm going to, you know, spend 
90 minutes or two hours, you know, following the story of a, of a given character, I tend to get more out of it if I like the character or if there's somebody I can cheer for, or if there's some goal to be met, obstacle to be overcome. Mm-hmm. Even before these guys start doing their absolutely awful things, they're just awful. Uh, <laughs> they're just this- awful. Like, from square one, there's nothing to like about the The one character who we're supposed to sort of see the slow downfall of, like, even he, from the first frame of the movie, I fucking hated him. And Yeah, he's the good guy, in air quotes. Yeah. And yeah, you don't like him either. And I think that that might have been the flaw to me, or, or uh, some of the things that, that took away the power of Dead Girl for me. I think that if we liked these guys and then we saw them become these terrible monsters that I would feel more emotionally involved and get more upset by what I was supposed to be upset by. But as a, as a result, I was just inundated with ugliness for 90 minutes and uh, it became so overwhelming that that was my overwhelming sort of left. what, What I was left with was just that felt terrible. Yeah. Or maybe it's, one guy who you know uh ends up in filth instead of all of them yes you know like ugh. yeah so yeah that's the the setup i guess i sort of already broached it uh the two main characters one of which was driving me crazy the, the guy that we're supposed to like it's like where have i seen you before where have i seen you before uh he's one of the main characters in the remake from evil dead mm. i don't know if you ever saw the evil dead remake anyway no. he, he went on to other things yeah, they just, they skip school, they get drunk, they're just demolishing a, an asylum for no reason, just being yeah. idiots. And Let's wreck stuff! They find their way to a room by crawling through a vent or some weird shenanigans, and uh, yes, there's a zombie woman strapped to a gurney and abandoned in this place. And they decide to, as the conversation goes, keep her. And, of course, it becomes this terrible, dangerous secret that can't be kept. Uh, the more people that know about it, the, the more complications that happen, the more the infection starts to spread, and the more they go from being terrible to horrible. That's kind of the journey of the movie, the journey from terrible to horrible. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, and I wish I could say that in the end, like, it was all worthwhile. And, and yeah, I... I don't think that the movie wants us to like these guys. I don't think that they're heroic. I think that in a lot of ways, the the movie is on the side of the dead girl in some ways. But I just found it overwhelmingly unpleasant to the point where, like, I almost need to take a shower after I watched it. Yeah, and the ending wasn't um, a surprise or a revelation or anything. I mean, it was just, yep. Apparently, the corrupt, there's a, it's not really similar, but a movie that I was thinking about while I was watching it, it's called Pathology. It's about this surgeon who goes to a school and uh, all of the (laughs) students that are there seem to be sociopaths. They're super smart, but they're also super crazy. And he gets sort of corrupted slowly by them for his time being there. Uh, and that's sort of what I thought maybe this would have been more interesting. Like you said, if the one guy was completely unhinged and dangerous and he was scared of him and, you know, they had this secret and he had to keep it or, or you know, he was in trouble. But it really reads to me like 
he wishes he had control over the dead girl and kind of in the end resented his buddy, you know, taking the pole position. Just, I found her, <laughs> right? In the end, isn't that what it becomes? And this this girl that he likes at school that, that they're playing it up is so sweet because it was the one sweet aspect that the movie was offering. I fucking knew that it wasn't going to end well, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> That's not the language that this film is speaking. The, yeah. the moral of the story is that men are terrible. All men are terrible. And they will grow from being awful to more terrible. <laughs> well, and, and basically credits. it validates this guy's uh, destiny as an incel because he's like, makes the, the girl who wouldn't date him become his zombie slave. Yeah. Like, ugh. She, the dead girl is, is released. She does kill a lot of the people who had been raping her repeatedly over the last, you know, however many weeks. And she just disappears from the movie. And he doesn't really care about her. He never really cared about her. No. There was never for a second any entertaining of the thought of sympathy for how that woman got to that chair and how she became what she was. It was like, wow, we can, we can fuck her. Exactly. And even the quote unquote good guy who's saying, you know, oh, no, we can't do this. Let's untie her, blah, blah, blah. And he even um, ends up getting some bolt cutters so that I can free her. Well, you don't have to do any of that. If you're really serious, call the cops. Call the cops. They'll go down there. I mean, that's all you had to do. (laughs) This all goes away with a phone call. Yeah. Yes. I just present it, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to come off as this guy like anti, you know, feminist guys, or like everybody's giving men a, a bad rap. But this is one of those movies where, like, I wish there was just one character I could go to as like a, like a a representative of some kind of moral compass, of some kind of reason, of some kind of humanity. I understand that there are some dark corners to the world, and I understand that there are movies that kind of rub our nose in it, and in a way, rightfully so. The Requiem of the Dreams of the World, or the the, yes. the Schindler's Lists of the World, right? But they're all working on a grain of truth. And I'm not saying that, you know, exploitation of women doesn't happen, but this doesn't feel real to me. And if it's not going to be <laughs> real, then... All this rapey shit's gonna spoil the meal to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this movie offended me on several levels. <laughs> and, uh, well, the first level was just the ugliness of the characters and that there was just, you know, nothing plot wise that was balancing that at all. And then my second level of being offended was on behalf of men. Because it makes it seem like, well, there's just no reason not to stick your dick in anything. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what they, you know, are, that's the portrayal of it. I, all the men in this movie. I and, promise you, Mick, if I found a naked woman <laughs> strapped to a gurney who was clearly a zombie, at no point would fucking her enter my mind. <laughs> I promise you. you. See, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, and then it also offended me just on a personal hygiene level oh. that, you know, like, uh, she's, you know, obviously she's so dirty and she's rotting and she's starting to smell and all the guys are like, eh, no biggie, yeah. you know, 
we can still have sex with her. And then there was that one scene where, you know, she's got this festering wound and the guy sticks his finger in it and is like, Whoa, well, <laughs> it's warm. It's like, <laughs> God. No. Just awful. Stop. I have to think, and we're going to have a similar conversation. We talk about the lead character and the woman as well. The actress playing the girl on the gurney. Yeah. I mean, it's unarguably a bold and brave performance. She is naked for the bulk of the time we see her in the movie, and uh, she is repeatedly raped, and, you know, she's trying to escape, but, like, even if she does escape, her fate is what? She's this feral zombie woman? Like... Yeah. Uh, I was hoping... I was hoping you were going to tell me that most of it was a dummy, <laughs> not an actress, but... Uh, maybe so, but, like, from an actor's perspective, that would be a difficult, to say the least, role to approach. And in order to do it, in order to say yes to it, I think you'd have to convince yourself that this project was about something, was saying something. Yeah. And again, I think it's trying to, but... It, without anyone to anchor to there's no there's no sugar to help this medicine go down at all at all and uh it kills any any joy that you could not that there's any joy that you could be found in such an ugly story but it could have been it still could have been an interesting worthwhile story if it had you know if it was about something more if yeah. there was you know like you said before if it was done in a different way if it wasn't every single guy is an asshole like it's not the plot by itself yeah that's i'm not dismissing it. the premise i'm dismissing the execution yeah. and unfortunately it's not the first time we're going to have this conversation <laughs> in this episode um people like this movie there is a contingent that has the, the you know says it's kind of a bold movie and that it's saying stuff but mm. uh I personally suspect that it more enjoys making you uncomfortable than it enjoys telling you a story. And that's kind of where I land on Dead Girl. I agree. There is something inside of me that's lethal. Dentata. What? It's Latin for teeth. It's what's inside me. Are you afraid? This is too weird. Just wait. So I'm sure when the like press information came out for Teeth, you know, the Steven Spielbergs of the world read it and were like, shit, this is a million dollar idea. I should have made this movie. <laughs> um, apparently the uh, myth of Vagina Dentata is pretty rich history. It goes back to like a Greek legends or some shit. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that stuck around for a long, long time. And, uh, yes, here we are, finally, they've decided to make a movie about it. And it's so much less grotesque than you could imagine it being. 
while yeah. at the same time still being pretty fucking grotesque, but like I can totally understand someone hearing the premise and just saying, I'm not watching that fucking movie. Like, I get it. <laughs> Respect, okay? But I think that this movie's got some interesting cards to play. I think it does have a subversive sense of humor. And I think that uh, just some of the decisions made by the character uh, are interesting sort of satirical observations. Uh, just a bunch of stuff to the left of, you know, the focused premise of the movie. This very uh, provocative idea, I guess, of a vagina dentata. So, yeah, Dawn finds out at a young age that she's got these appendages. <laughs> and uh, it, it spooks her. She has a really, really creepy uh, incident with her soon-to-be stepbrother at a young age. And... She, she knows something's wrong, but repress it all, repress it all, repress it all. And we catch up with Dawn, and she's in high school, and she's kind of hanging out with the uh, religious crowds. She's really uh, all about purity. She wears this purity ring. She gives speeches to the other students about how it's important to keep your chastity, to, you know, not be a dirty person. And it's kind of interesting because we know where this is coming from. <laughs> we know that this has nothing to do with Dawn loving the Jesus. And it has everything to do with Dawn being frightened of her own sexuality. And a lot of kids are frightened of their own sexuality and they don't have vagina dentata. But again, 15 minutes into the movie, it's way smarter than I was anticipating it being. Mm -hmm. I will say that teeth is not for everybody. But I surprise myself by saying... I endorse the movie. I would recommend it. That's where I start on teeth, but uh, I would love to hear what you have to say. Well, I surprised by myself by liking the movie, actually. Um, I mean, I had some issues with it, but overall, I thought the plot was interesting. Um, I was kind of distracted, actually, by the... Um, Springfield nuclear power plant that they were always showing that was behind the house. Like I yeah. thought that was going to come up as a implication, you know, cause like that's for her why mutation yeah. or something like that. But <laughs> but but no, the story was interesting all the way through, and I was kind of rooting for our main character. And yeah, it was a lot it, better than I thought it would be. Similarly, deals with incredibly dark and harsh subject matter, which we were talking about in the previous review, Dead Girl, but. Unlike it, we, we have characters that we like. I do think that this movie's guilty of not having enough, you know, human male characters. Pretty much, again, all of the men, with maybe the exception of her dad, although he doesn't seem to be paying a lot of attention to how fucked up, you know, his kids are. <laughs> um, but but it's clear that, you know, he loves her and he's a, a good person. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, and he loves her mother and, you know, he's devastated when she dies and, and all of that. So he's... You know, I mean, he's maybe not complex, but he's a good guy. Literally every other man in the movie, though, is pretty much awful. Not all of them are yeah. as incredibly evil as her stepbrother, but, like, fucking gynecologist. The, Ugh. Both, wow. of, both of the boys that she uh, ends up having <laughs> little flings with, that, uh, you know, <laughs> she ends up removing their genitalia, and we end up not feeling bad for either of them. <laughs> you know? Um, again... I think that maybe there could be more nuance, but I understood the role that these guys were playing in the story. 
basically the story is Dawn discovers that she has this self-defense mechanism and learns eventually not to fear it, but to embrace it <laughs> to some degree. Right. She has a way to defend herself that most women don't. And it's established yeah. that she can have safe sex with a boy if she doesn't feel threatened. It's yeah. only when she feels threatened. It almost seems like a reflective, reflexive act. The second, you know, her her danger detector goes off, then her teeth bite down and shit happens. It's like in Shawshank where he says, you know, where the, um, you know, if you stick that steel in my head, the reflex is to bite down hard. Really hard, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I do think that it would be nice if there was a few more likable male characters, but I understand that she has to be overcome these adversaries. At first be beaten down by them and then sort of overcome them, but uh, it's still a problem. I think it would have been nice to see a few more human male characters, but uh, it sure. wasn't to the level of, of Dead Girl, and I understood its purpose more than I did in Dead Girl. You know? Yeah, and... Did it strike you that her stepbrother was the grown-up version of Sid, the neighbor boy in Toy Story? <laughs> well, it will next time I watch the movie. <laughs> That's exactly who that guy was. He terrible. was so fucking awful. Again, like stretching credulity. Like the yeah. other asshole uh, teenage boys were just, you know, way too sexually aggressive you know, basically date raped a girl. That's evil, but uh, within the realms of reality. The other guy who, like, basically sleeps with her just to prove that he can sleep with the purity ring girl and brag about it to his guys. That's awful, but it he sort of... He her. Yeah, but it, it sort of exists, like, I can... As horrible as it is, I kind of believe that that fucking asshole exists. Yeah. But her brother is some next-level awful. I don't yeah. understand how anybody would, like, share a bed with him. Like, his girlfriend, like, I'd pity her because of how terrible he is to her, but she stays with him, too. Like, it's just like, like I, 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 can't, I can't get my head around the... There's no reality to that. But he is a very hateable victim. And, like, when his penis is not just severed but then destroyed by his beloved pet it's a really <laughs> really huge payoff like <laughs> yeah he had that coming <laughs> but yeah he insists on only having anal sex because he's traumatized by the childhood event but he's also fixated on his sister he really really like believes that she's saving herself for him there's just nothing not gross about that relationship the incest angle the history between them the fact that their their sexual history goes back to they're both in the single digit age category you know this is like the horror version of margot and richie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it goes back it all goes back to the royal tannenbaums <laughs> you know you know what would have made this movie you know even more interesting were it directed by wes anderson <laughs> <laughs> I want to see these perfectly composed, frame-balanced shots <laughs> in the vagina dentatum. <laughs> and the dogs could be like, from Isle of Dogs, yeah. that mean dog. <laughs> I said it recently, I think in one of the What the Fuck movies, is like, it was a movie that I expected to be laughing at, and I ended up laughing with. And just the fact that it surprised me that much wins it a lot of points. The fact that it isn't the grotesque, awful thing that you imagine it to be. 
There is a very obscure anthology horror movie. <laughs> this is another strange aside, but I'll go there anyway. It's called uh, Grim Prairie Tales. And there's this story about this like guy on a wagon train or something, and he sees this woman walking by herself in the middle of nowhere, and she looks like burdened and like heavily pregnant and like sickly. So he offers to help her. But over the course of the day that he's with her, she gets less and less and less pregnant and sort of turns into a beautiful woman. And uh, then that night by the fire, they go to have sex, and he suddenly disappears. And it cuts to the morning, and she walks away, and she's got this big belly. Oh. <laughs> and <then she's> wow. <laughs> what a good idea. These are the thoughts that were going through my head when I heard of teeth, though. Like, that we were going to see this, like, monster, <laughs> like, monster vagina thing, right? <laughs> yeah, we didn't see it. We didn't get to see well, it. Well, I mean... And again, like, the, what an obstacle to get behind. Like, if you want the movie to be seen by anybody, you don't want the dreaded NC-17. But if the subject of your movie is Vagina Dentata, you're really painted into a corner. Yeah. Uh, it's actually much more graphic, uh, as far as the nudity goes, on the men. We never even get a glimpse of the ladies trying to say it for pictures in the book. Um, yep. But it is graphic. Like I said, a dog eats a severed penis. There's a darkly hilarious operating table sequence where they're going to reattach the penis and the uh, surgeon is heard to remark, huh, hardly seems worth it. (laughs) (laughs) And again, to be able to laugh at that and enjoy that line, you know, the movie has accomplished something. (laughs) Yeah. I think. There was something else I wanted to say about teeth, and it's falling right out of my brain. Is there anything you wanted to say about teeth? I feel like we're doing short work on this one. Yeah, um, just with the way the movie ends. So she decides that she's going to leave town, and now she's empowered. She's realized that she can, you know, control her gift. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's great and everything. And then she hitches a ride, and then, of course, when she's getting out of the car... He's not going to let her out, and he's a creepy old man. Yeah. So, um, you know, of course, that's in line with the story, but it ends with her kind of looking at him and grinning, kind of with like, uh, haha, I can get you, kind yeah. of, kind of a an end flavor, and I don't really like that because even though she's empowered, she still needs to be violated in order to use her gift. It's and not like should she, she can enjoy just, it? Pardon me? The, should she enjoy it? The smile kind of implies... Like, she first smiles out the window, presumably breaking the wall, smiling at us. I know what I'm going to do with this guy. Yeah. If it's but just it's a like... self-defense mechanism, should it be something that you relish using? And the smile might imply that, maybe. Is that what you're saying? Um, not really. Well, I mean, that's true, too. But what I'm saying is she still has to go to the point of he's going to have to, you know, either rape her or force himself on her for her to be able to exact revenge. And even though she can, you know, she can pull out a lot of hurt, she still has to go through that in order to do it. It's not like she's got, you know, knife hands or something and can just go around and kill people if they're being mean to her, you know? So it's still, to me, that's still not really a win. That's still not empowerment, you know? Like, ugh, it's still really a, it's still more of a a defense. And, but yeah, I also don't like that, you know, that she's turning into someone who would be happy to do it. Yeah. 
But uh, like, I, I feel glad that she's getting away from that environment. Wherever she goes, literally wherever she goes, will be a better place for her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, again, I'm not horrified or disgusted by by Dawn. You know, I I, I, I like Dawn. I'm cheering for Dawn. You know, I yeah. hope that you know things work out for her. She she meets a nice dentist somewhere. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is getting too weird, and please, you know, stop me if this is uncomfortable, but did she get baby teeth? Did she lose baby teeth? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. That would have raised some red flags. Presumably yeah. she's not eating anything, so like, she's not getting cavities or anything like that, but, uh. Well, I don't know. bacteria causes cavities. These are things they can maybe get into in the sequel. <laughs> Yeah, good enough. <laughs> this is our project. And it's a secret. What are we gonna do with her? We're gonna help her. We're gonna train her, civilize her, free her from herself, from her baser instincts. Get the rope. Extending? Have you ever known me to let things get out of hand? Do you really think we should be doing this? We do. The Woman is an adaptation of a novel written by Jack Ketchum, who a lot of horror fans are appreciators of. I do not count myself in that bunch, although that said, I've only read one of his books and seen a handful of the movies that were made off of his books. but. I'm not a fan of Ketchum, but I am a fan of Lucky McGee. He directed a movie called May. I don't know if you've ever seen May. It's sort of a feminist Frankenstein, kind of, sort of. Nope. Really interesting movie, and a lot of the movies that he does do deal with female protagonists. Usually they are suffering a lot. There's definitely the, the case in this one. But I was disheartened to see him go down this path because... This is getting into the ugly torture point e exploitation stuff that I'm not comfortable with. I might not have gone down this road at all if not for the fact that Lucky McGee attached his name to it. The story is about a fundamental religious crazy hunter dude who uh, captures a... He, he <laughs> discovers a feral woman in the woods and uh, decides that he's going to take her to his farm, tie her up in the barn, and reform her. Turn her into a proper citizen. And again, much like we talked about with Dead Girl, there are zero likable characters in the movie. Like, there's victims, there's people who are allowing people to be victimized, and there's a uniform ugliness. 
And I kept on waiting to the point where I would have this aha moment where I would understand the point of all of this, where I'd understand where it's coming from. The other thing feeding into this, Mick, is that this is kind of a sequel. There's a movie called The Offspring, which has to do with this feral family living in the woods of Maine, preying on like people eating entire families, m- murdering raping, killing, and eating entire families. That's basically what that whole movie was about, and presumably the book. And I was not a fan. And this is a sequel. Uh, The only person that survived from the family that we knew was this woman. And I guess this was her fate. So she's feral, and she's animalistic, and she's dangerous. And the family is, quote, civilized, but corrupt and evil and psychologically bent. And... There's no way this is going to lead to any kind of positive outcome. And there's no real joy or entertainment in watching these events play out. So I guess the question becomes, is it about something enough to justify its ugly existence? Or is this just another dead girl? I thought that there was way more in this movie to justify its existence than dead girl. Um... Because, yes, the whole family is um, victimized by the father figure, but it's kind of interesting to, you know, see their struggle and see how, you know, how they're forcibly complicit in the, the, you know, in caring for the woman and, you know, keeping her there and stuff. And, you know, they're as trapped as she is, you know, so I definitely agree with it. The the family is terrified of the patriarch of the family, even though he comes off as sort of this meek, weird Mormon vibe off of him. uh, What he says fucking goes (laughs) like he definitely rules with an iron fist and it's it's this really hateful, aggravating thing because it's all under the mask of piety, right? It's all under the mask of piety, but you know this guy's fucking bad news. And you know he's, like, psychologically bent uh, in his way as feral and dangerous as the woman. I guess maybe because of the background we have with the woman, I mean, I feel sorry for anybody put in a position where they're, like, you know, tied, tortured, raped, the boiling water poured on them. Like, there's, like, obviously bad, awful. But had she encountered this family on the road, she would have killed and eat them, <laughs> right? But not having seen the previous movie, I didn't necessarily have that know context. that. Yeah. Well, and we don't know that either. And this is sort of the other thing I'm wondering. Like, she's been living in this, these woods for quite some time by herself, and presumably families haven't still been going missing. So in my right. head, since the offspring, since she lost her whole family... Due to that way of life, she has revised her approach to living. But again, all of this we have to put in ourselves. I think that we sympathize with the girl just because of what she's put through. But uh, that in the end of the day, when she does turn on the family and kill them, we're like, yay, vindication. But at the same time, I don't think it's outside of the realm of you know realistic expectation to say that she wouldn't have done it anyway on another day. Um, again, everybody is dangerous. Everybody is awful. 
and uh, the little kid who I think that the 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 son I'm trying I mean uh, that I think they're trying to similarly to the dead girl thing we're supposed to kind of like that kid and then sort of you know feel this twist in our stomach as we see him become the monster that his father has made him never liked the kid never no. trusted the kid always knew it was going to go to a bad place with him oh i never felt that they wanted us to like him no. i didn't even get that impression i thought we were supposed to connect with the girls only yeah and i didn't uh no, and that whole boys will be boys mentality, that that is just my least favorite portrayal of men and boys. It's just, ugh, makes me sick. I can't stand it. Um, I was guilty of saying it in, in my younger life, too, but I do think that one of the more damaging turns of phrases that get bantied about is be a man. Just the context of it is just almost always inappropriate. When people say be a man, they basically mean don't cry when you're hurt or yeah. don't feel that emotion that you're feeling, right? Uh, and yeah, I believe that that can lead to corrupt things. But again, this is this is the most extreme, extreme out there thing. And then we have, yes, the female character, Angela Batiste, who was the main character in May, plays the, the wife and... Again, she lives in, in fear and horror of her husband, but she allows all of this to go on. Uh, so I, I feel bad for her without sympathizing with her, I guess, is where I end up. I know that she was built in or made to the, the place that she's become, but this can't go on. You, 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 can't, you can't subject your kids to this. This can't go on. And yeah. I think that when I was wanting to like the movie, again, I liked the director and I wanted to see things to it. There's this thing dropped in the two-thirds of the way through the movie where we see this other feral girl that has been kept in this cage. Where did that come from? I did not see that coming. And why were why was that kept from us? That's like... So then, then this is just one of a series? Or was she a feral child? Who What? What? And again, at that point, it was just another awful, ugly thing so that the movie could have another awful, ugly thing. And I didn't think that the movie needed <laughs> another awful, ugly thing. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the, the Angela Batiste character and the, the other daughter? They're clearly horrified and they're clearly victimized, but they're spared at the end and they're sort of going to live their different, better lives. But... Should they be given a pass? Are they innocent at the end of this? Um, I don't know. Like, what do you mean, are they innocent? I certainly don't think they deserve their fate. I mean, they didn't put anything into action. They, you know, like, they're kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, the daughter definitely, she's implicit in helping the, the woman escape. Uh, and the, the mother seems to be punished, basically, because you, you, I'm a woman, you're a woman, I, I was a mother, you are a mother. How can you just stand by and let this happen? Like, the death that is put upon Angela Batiste is even somehow more personal. She eats the heart of one of her victims, but she attacks the face of Angela Batiste. She bites her 
face, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant, sorry, I misunderstood what you said. Yeah, um, I didn't think she, yeah. I can understand why the woman attacked her, <laughs> but I would have preferred that she could just <laughs> walk away, I guess. I mean, she'd been through enough, and it wasn't her fault. Walking away without killing the mother would be more clean in a lot of ways. She killed and punished the men, and the men were the major instigators and the major, uh, you know, they did the most physical harm to her. So payback is a bitch, right? Uh, she didn't have to kill the, the mom, but she did, yeah. and she did it in a yeah. very brutal personal way. Uh, yeah. And if she hadn't killed the mom, then it would be more clean psychologically and just said she doesn't like men, understandably. She has more trust of women. She let the women go. But we aren't even given that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I can. I understand there's like a, a real split crowd on this movie. There are people, again, who will defend it and say it was bold and it was trying to make a... a make a point um again i wish i could understand and therefore like and sympathize with almost all of the characters because i really don't in the end i don't understand the the woman and i don't understand why the men in this family are that fucking evil and i don't understand why the women in the family are that that completely willing to fall over a barrel to to, to tolerate that level of evil and again, I understand that shit like that happens in the real world, but it just wasn't credible to me in this movie. I just, I stopped believing it. Mm -hmm. But just the mothers um, having stayed all that time, um, just that actress's, um, just her demeanor and everything, it reminded me a lot of the Alison Janney character in um, American Beauty. Right. Or is that the name of that movie? Yeah. She yeah, just hollowed just, out yeah, from the abuse. Yeah, and if she had stayed there for another, you know, five years and survived, that's who she would have become. Just, you know, sitting at the dining room table, staring off into space and not even having her own personality anymore. Just a you mute know? shell so, of a person. Yeah, like, so I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't get it. I don't, but I understand that there are, there are reasons why they can't walk away, you know, and... Yeah. And again, so, this the strata, they're, they're isolated where they are, and they've been raised in an environment that even in the modern age, what the man of the family says go. And then, like, I just maybe have a hard time relating to that. We're going to talk about this again when we move into Rosemary's Baby. You know, uh, I think that because it takes place in the 60s, uh, stuff that makes more sense in the 60s, I find frust more frustrating in, in 2018. Uh, yeah. I think they're going, at its best, the woman is going for this sort of stern morality fable. And at its worst, it's a torture porn movie. And at the end, I just don't know, I don't know where it lands. But I know, considering the other movies that Lucky McGee has made, this is probably my least favorite of his movies. And it's a movie that I want to like, but I struggle with. I struggle with. I find it uncomfortable. Once again, much like the dead girl, uh, I just, I, my overarching experience of the film was so unpleasant that that's kind of all I, I, I have to sort of share about it. It was yeah. as unpleasant as the premise of the movie would suggest. 
Is there anything else you want to say about the woman? No, I don't think so. No, I'm glad it didn't completely spoil the meal. I, I can, you know, you show a movie like this to the wrong person and they'll flip a table on. <laughs> like, people will react toxically to shit like this. And again, the this level of violence and again, rape in film, even in well-intentioned films, just makes me uncomfortable. It spoils the meal. horror movie made by an incredibly famous but problematic director in Roman Polanski. I just want to get it out of the way. I'm aware of the controversy surrounding Roman Polanski. Um, I do think that he's a really good filmmaker. I've talked about Chinatown in the past in this movie, in the podcast. I really like Death and the Maiden. I really like The Pianist. And I, I don't know that any of the controversies around him have anything to do with whether or not those are good or bad movies. Those remain good movies whether or not the person who made them is a good or bad person. I acknowledge it. It's problematic. Mick and I talked about it a little bit before we hit record, but we're going to talk about Rosemary's Baby and we're just going to try and talk about the film. (laughs) So I just wanted to get ahead of it because otherwise the whole thing's going to get, you know, get stirred up into the controversy. I grew into Rosemary's Baby. Shocking truth, the first time I saw Rosemary's Baby, and granted I was probably too young to really fully appreciate it, I didn't understand what all of the fuss was about. And uh, I saw it again when I was in my teenage years, and I think I got closer to it, but I just like, maybe maybe this movie is too old already. Maybe this is just one that just, uh, it, it was so out of my understanding of the culture that I, I it didn't ring with me the way it could have the older I get the more Rosemary's Mary's baby really works <laughs> um, uh, the acting in it is really good but I think what I really connect to the episode previous to this we talked about the remake of the Wicker Man but uh, I'll go back to the original Wicker Man is the idea of the this central character being caught in a web where literally everyone around her is forcing them into this into a trap that that they're almost helpless to fall into <laughs> it's not just one person like it would be one thing if it was just her husband or just her neighbor or just her doctor right but it's everybody an entire community aligned against you which 
I think is actually the real horror of the, the movie more than the supernatural satanic shenanigans which kind of come off weirdly funny to me at times when when you see you know these <laughs> octogenarians screaming hail Satan it, it kind of it's just sort of strange you know <laughs> this seems like it would be a young man's game but you know um, so we have the story about Rosemary and her uh, wannabe actor husband who have an unlikely lavish apartment in downtown New York and uh, their, their struggles to make a life together and the sudden radical changes that happen once they move into the apartment building. Um, Polanski has this reputation with sort of pushing the idea of urban horror. He's done three different, maybe four different now thriller or horror films that are set in a house or in an apartment. One of them's called The Apartment in the middle of a city where you wouldn't necessarily imagine great peril could, you know, be sustained. There's always a neighbor. There's always someone to go to. Unless the neighbor is the problem. Unless the person that you go to for help is the problem. Yes, she's pregnant and she's got really overbearing neighbors that are force-feeding her to eat these really gross, phlegmy-looking shakes. And her husband is acting... Com simultaneously less and more interested in her <laughs> and she's constantly trying to make the place hers i noticed this watching it this time and she's constantly being interrupted anytime she's trying to put her own personal touch on the on the apartment uh it gets uprooted by something that she is demanding to do i think the movie works again i think the paranoid atmosphere of the movie is really really well done uh but as I think I mentioned in the early review, if I have something that pushes back against me, it is, I get frustrated with Rosemary. <laughs> I want her to just stop listening to these people, to take some initiative and just fucking leave, right? Uh, and that means the suspense is working. That frustration definitely means that my nerves are being attacked. But like, I did. I just like, stop just moaning and shrugging and saying okay and ask a real point-blank hard question to one of these people <laughs> demand a straight answer and again that means the movie's working but i also will say that i was kind of fighting with the movie a little bit too uh what did what did Mireille think of rosemary's baby yeah i agree with that um i really think that the sort of mounting suspicion and paranoia all that really works for me and uh but everyone else's dismissiveness about her her pains and her issues and everything to me that's that's totally believable you know especially in the 60s you know right male doctors were constantly telling women that you know oh the pain's not that bad oh you know whatever so it's to me completely believable that she would just you know not act on any of that because i mean that's just how it is right that's just how it was so i didn't that didn't bother me at all in fact i thought that was um kind of helped the story along because it you know when she finally does act it makes it that much more um, brave on her part. I think the huge tough pill to swallow scene is after the Satan orgy and she wakes up in the bed and she's like naked and scratched up and <laughs> I guess like aware that oh. some encounter had happened and the excuse that he offers her is that uh. it was like 
Well, we were. It was our night. This is the night we usually do that, and you were asleep. But I just did it anyway, and it was kind of fun in a necrophilic kind of way. <laughs> There's not enough fuck you in the world, dude. You are a piece of shit. And by the way, if you manage to have sex with your wife to completion without waking her, she deserves a better life. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I forgot about that part. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. like, she's put up with yeah. a lot. She's put up with a lot. She's, like, met him halfway in a lot of ways. She's tried to make this new life work. And, yeah, maybe it's going to be hard and weird at the beginning, but we got to get past these first few weeks, right? That line that she allows to go by is, like, even in the 60s, I, I mean, maybe I'm naive about it, but I'm just like, no. I am the fuck out of here, and uh, uh, you talk to me again when you're a human being, because that's <laughs> that's insane. That is insane. Don't no 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 no. Again, she's a product of like she grew up in the fifties, presumably in in, in pr- probably a household ruled by a strong, probably belligerent male. So that's all she's known, and she to to question it would never occur to her. But I have to believe. That you wake up scratched and raped, let's say it, and that's that's the that's the answer he gives, and you just you have to take it. I don't know. In twenty eighteen, that's a big pill to swallow. <laughs> I did swallow it, it is a, but I, it was tough. It is, yeah, it is a big pill to swallow, but at the same time, you know, he's her husband. She loves him. Benefit of the doubt, all that stuff, and yeah, it, it's. It goes, it goes far, but still, to me, not completely unbelievable. Uh, I don't know. I know that they're going forward a sort of a, especially at the time it was made, the novel too, the sort of feminist slant. It was sort of like, she has no agency over her life. Everything, all of her decisions are made, leading up to including being the mother of Satan uh, and embracing it. Her role is to be a loving mother. So even if the child's a monster, she's going to play that role. I get it just a postulating an idea that might have been as interesting as if like the that same sort of psychological prison was put upon the husband instead of him just being this evil piece of shit who sells his wife off so that he can become a successful actor maybe if he had this drive in him that he had to be the breadwinner he had to be the guy you know paying the bills and taking care of everything and if not if he's not doing that he's failing as a man and as a human being so if, if, if what I have to do in order to succeed is throw my hat in with a bunch of Satanists, then I guess that's what I have to do. I think that could have been a more interesting, balanced approach. Instead, the John Cassavetes character is the most evil character in the movie. Like, I would like, uh, maybe Satan himself. Okay, Satan himself might be more evil than Cassavetes in the movie. But I mean... <laughs> If that's the table that we're measuring on, he's like, <laughs> um, I always find yeah. that it's villains are usually more interesting if they have dimension. I think that he should have been tortured by his own. He should have felt guilty about it <laughs> on some level. It should have, you know, registered. But he was just too excited about being a successful actor. that he thought that oh we'll just move to Beverly Hills and you'll just forget about that baby that supposedly died and it'll all be fine that was that's a little tone deaf <laughs> we'll, we'll have other babies you know <laughs> we can make more yeah. of them what's that line from the Simpsons it's okay Lisa we'll just go to the pound and get you another jazz man <laughs> no 
That's not how it works, okay? <laughs> Again, it sounds like I'm being critical of the movie. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. A lot of times I find myself just sort of thinking about other directions they can go. Um, I will say, because of the time it's made, there is the pace is slower than we're used to in 2018, and there is some sort of archness to some of the performances. They just sort of feel a little bit more theatrical, just because of the time they came in. I love Ruth Gordon as an actress, uh, the, the the really loud neighbor who's forcing all the food on her. <laughs> she was in uh, uh, Harold and Maude. I always loved that actress, um, but she's big. Like, she just, like, she's... blows everybody off of the screen whenever she's there. Uh, she just has this quality to her. <laughs> so kooky. <laughs> She'd be charming if she wasn't so evil. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something so grandmotherly about her. And even when she, like, puts her cards on the table, there's something sort of sing-songy about, like, she, Satan could have picked anybody in the world, but he picked you. And it's just like, oh, that's the sweetest, awfulest thing you've ever (laughs) Um, I wanted to talk about Charles Grodin. You know Charles Grodin? Uh, he's mainly known as a comedic. He's mainly known as a comedic actor. In the movie, he plays the one doctor who we believe to be legitimately on the level, who's not liking the the condition that she's in, and uh, we think that he's going to be a hero to her. And in the end, he ends up delivering her back to them. The interesting thing about that is that, at least on this take, I uh, I guess when I was a kid, I just assumed he's part of the cult. He's evil. I'm thinking maybe this past that he wasn't part of the cult and he wasn't evil he just wasn't taking her seriously because she was a girl right she's just this pregnant frazzled woman who doesn't know what she's talking about thinks everyone's against her and he's just gonna pat her on her head and send her home and that's actually more horrifying than him being part of the coven as far as i'm concerned where do you land on him I agree. That's exactly what I thought. And um, not only that, but that um, that um, school of thought where we couldn't possibly let this woman make any big decisions without informing her husband. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so just that whole thing was, that's just how it was. She's making know? all and these wild accusations. That, yeah, you're making all these terrible accusations about your husband. We should see what your husband thinks about this. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I, I guess another, um, I guess another facet to her, sort of just accepting everything and um, seeming. I don't know. That kind of comes through when she gets her haircut, and practically every single person is basically telling her to her face that she looks like shit, and it doesn't phase her at all. Yeah, she her just, husband. Like, you paid going, for that. You know. You paid for that haircut as like as a, a person who you know is married. You're on the couch for a good long time. <laughs> like her husband that's... says it to her, her best friend says it to her. Like, jeez, you guys! How dare you make a personal decision for yourself? Shame on you! <laughs> and yes, and that's, that's frustrating. And, and yeah. I mean, the movie is a comment on it, so it's deliberate, and I understand that. I'm not. I don't really mean it to be a knock against it, but it does. 
it's that feeling of the movie, that scene in the horror movie where the protagonist is trying to explain what's happening and no one will listen to it. That's the whole movie, really. It's yeah. that is more scary, like I said, than the than the Satan rape scene or the Kevin scene, the famous what have you done with the eyes scene. Like those scenes are all good and they work, but I think like I said, it's this this cumulative trap, this community set against you. Uh, and again, that using it as a metaphor is sort of culture being set against you in in a in a not so feminist nineteen sixty six when the book came out. So, but I couldn't quite remember if um, like if we didn't know what watching the movie the first time would we have um, had doubts that maybe the the whole Satan sex scene was just a dream. Like, are we are we unsure? about everything until the very end where she finds out like I couldn't remember how much we really know the first time we watched the movie I never really felt the is it or isn't it like for me there was clearly something bad going on and it wasn't she was just going crazy that was an angle they could have played but I think you know the movie went into it I think knowing that the audience was watching and expecting a horror movie and at right. some point, they were going to keep the promise that it was a horror movie. But in the meantime, they got all of this inter- intellectual stuff done on the side, you know? And they snuck it in. They, they didn't sort of mush your nose in it. It's there if you want it. It could just be a straight movie about a girl who moves into the wrong apartment building. But there's a lot more going on. And I think that's why people are still talking about Rosemary's Baby, um, you know? It's one of the few horror movies that hasn't been sequelized or remade or fucked with, and I kind of appreciate that. And I don't know what a modern Rosemary's Baby would look like. Like, what does Rosemary, what what does Rosemary's Baby look like in the Me Too era? <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. It's an interesting, to worthy, worthy movie, and it, like any horror movie that will both scare you and give you something to think about or talk about. I mean. Yes. If you haven't watched Rosemary's Baby, of course watch Rosemary's Baby. Um, I also like the uh, sort of lullaby horror movie theme of the Rosemary's Baby. Fun fact is actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah. She, the lead actress, Mia Farrow, actually sang it. Like, she, she oh. contributed that to the movie. And uh, it's still creepy as fuck. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that, actually. That, that just sets the tone perfectly and it like it sticks it's an earworm it stays in your head for days after you watch the movie but, yeah i like it that's the ringtone on my phone whenever the wife calls <laughs> i joke uh, is there anything else you want to say about rosemary's baby uh i don't think so no Thank you.
So there it was. We managed to get through all six of those lovely lady horror movies. Um, I'm glad. Like, uh, I kind of felt like there was a chance that you could be really rubbed the wrong way by one of these movies or really like disgusted by it and by proxy me. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I uh, thought le less of you. I mean... <laughs> It's a tricky, ugly list, and certain people would react toxically to it, and, uh, you know, <laughs> thank you for doing it, and I'm really glad that uh, I got to talk about this list with a woman. I think that uh, it's good to get, obviously, a feminine perspective on all this and not just feel like a pervy dude talking about it. No. <laughs> well, in the same way that, you know, just because I'm a girl, I don't necessarily need to have a romantic angle to be interested in a story. Like, just because I'm a girl, I hope that I'm not going to get automatically offended mm. by things just because of what the plot is. And I, I didn't mean to imply that about you, but I just know no, that no. I, I just know that this they can trigger people. Yeah, you know. So, <laughs> good on you. It was a tough list. <laughs> I appreciate it. I hope you. I hope I didn't scare you off. And uh, I'm interested to hear, uh, what's your list? Are, are you going to finally win one of these? You, you, I felt like the last time you had a, this conversation, you really wanted it. <laughs> I really wanted it last time. Um, I, I can't tell from our conversation. I can't tell at all, actually. I have no idea. So, um, should I start? Let's do it. What's okay. your least favorite and why? My least favorite is Dead Girl. All one word, dead girl, <laughs> for dead girl. some reason. Why? We don't know. We don't know, but it's one word. Um, so, yeah, it's not the subject matter itself necessarily that I found offensive, um, but just that they didn't do anything with it. So the there just wasn't enough plot. There were too many reprehensible characters, all that stuff we already discussed. Characters were hateful. It's my least favorite representation of of men in any kind of movie, not just a horror movie. So, yeah. Number six, Dead Girl. Number five, I put Prom Night 2. Um, I did enjoy watching it, but in the end, you know, the story just wasn't that good. And even though, I mean, just looking at the titles and kind of hazarding a guess I thought that Prom Night 2 would be at number 6 and it wasn't yeah. so that's where that's where that one ends up number 3 is The Woman I found it very disturbing and but I put it above Prom Night 2 because I thought that you know the family dynamic was interesting and yeah, and I agreed with you in a lot of ways that there was just, you know, the the little girl who lived with the dogs at the end, like, that was just there for, for more shock, and why, yeah, I totally agree with that, and yeah, so, um, but it did have a lot more, um, a lot more to it than Dead Girl, that's for sure. Um, number three, Teeth. I thought uh, Teeth was... Actually, it was a pretty interesting coming-of-age story, you know, in essence. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Number two and number one, um, I kind of went back and forth on a little bit. But in the end, I put Carrie at number two. Um, really like Carrie. Um, you know, 
love Stephen King. Good ad- adaptation. Sissy Spacek is great. Um, but in the end, I put Rosemary's Baby at number one because I really like the, the psychological horror um, aspect to it. And I, I kind of like the the slow rhythm of the movie in this case. And I like the way it, it built. And, you know, it, I, I found the last scene really disturbing where she, you know, even though she's in this world of shit now, she still, you know, looks upon her baby with what's kind of turning into a loving gaze, and that is terrifying. She embraces her fate to some degree, yes. Yes. So that's my list. That's a good list. I'm sorry. You're right. Today was not the day. Today was not the day. Um, I thought it was only going to be one place where we missed stuff at first, and then that that would really piss you off. But then it, it happened in two areas. Um, okay. I think our lists are close enough that I, I, I think we're going to still part company, friends here. <laughs> so um, I agree with you. At the bottom, I put Dead Girl. I I, I won't say that they weren't trying to do something you know, more than just an exploitation thriller. I think that they had a high-minded aspect to the movie, but the ugliness outweighed everything. And uh, it just, it was too much. I couldn't, I couldn't get behind it. A lot of what I just said about the dead girl, I would also say about the woman, but just to a lesser degree. Um, again, I think that what they're trying to do was a good thing, but... Some of the gross kind of just took over. It was just leaned a little bit too heavy on. And again, the weird thing at the end. I also wanted to point out the actress who played the woman. She's gone on to play a part in the Walking Dead TV show. She's the leader of the garbage group. Uh, the, the All the, the survivors who live in the garbage heaps. I'm a couple seasons behind. No, oh, anyway. Um, she's a fine actress, but she's one of... The, that character is one of my least favorite characters in the entire run of The Walking Dead. Um, again, oh. <laughs> not to do with the actor. It's more to do with just... It's the most comic book thing that the show's ever done. And it's not taken from the comic books. So, <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I put the woman in fifth place. A lot of people will say that this is absurdly overperforming at putting Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2 all the way in fourth place. But I guess I just decided, uh, what am I more likely to revisit? <laughs> what would I get more joy out of watching, <laughs> you know, more, or at least more enjoyment out of watching? And yes, for all its ugly corners, for all its sort of pervy, <laughs> uncomfortable, cheap, low-budget Canadianness, I will revisit Prom Night 2 before I revisit Dead Girl. I promise you. <laughs> So, all the way in fourth position. Uh, in third place, we're back to agreement. I put teeth. And again, I saw, like, this is one of those movies where I was almost kind of embarrassed when I bought it. I bought it, like, dirt cheap when all the movie stores were dying out, right? But still, yeah, I just bought the Vagina Teeth movie. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The Vagina Teeth movie is totally watchable. It's nowhere near... I mean, as graphic as you could imagine it to be, while being graphic enough so that you don't feel like you got, you know, ripped off. <laughs> they give you your money's worth. <laughs> this is the best Vagina Dentata movie I've ever seen. 
Unfortunately, we reversed the top two, though. I put Rosemary's Baby in second place. I Like I said, I've my esteem for it has grown every time I've watched it throughout my life. Who knows, if I watch it again in you know, five or ten years, maybe it will eclipse it for me. But for me, again, the pace and energy and just the kind of dated quality of the movie itself makes it less rewatchable to me than Carrie. Carrie's got this sort of 70s vibe and split-screen stuff, but like the the supernatural revenge story is much more my bag and it's much more of sort of the popcorn munching sort of thrill ride roller coaster that I kind of you know tend to get behind so it was a near thing but in the end for me De Palma's carry remains in the top spot but like I said I, I our lists are different but not so different as to think you know yeah. <laughs> cause any real friction <laughs> Thank you so much for doing yet another episode of Rank and Review. I hope you uh, continue to do so. Maybe we can do better than a year this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, and I hope I'm not too far past your bedtime. Uh, it's, yeah, it is past my bedtime. <laughs> well, off right. to bed with you, girl. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're welcome. And so it was, another episode of Rankin Review comes to a close. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you continue listening to the show. I drop every other Wednesday, uh, and you should be able to find me wherever podcasts are cool. Please do share with your friends the institution that has become Rankin Review, and uh, please do send me feedback at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The site's at rankandreview.ca. I'm your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, and as always, thank you so much for listening to my show. Thank you.